This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 227 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest this week is veteran journalist and author Dina Temple-Raston, the newest member of the team at The Record by Recorded Future. Her distinguished career has included assignments at Bloomberg, The New York Sun, and most recently NPR, where she was a member of their Breaking News Investigations team. She shares her own professional journey, why she chose to join the team at The Record, and how she sees cybersecurity journalism shaping up in the coming years. Stay with us. It was so long ago now to go all the way back to my start is uh, <laughs> would take the entire 20 minutes. But the, the relevant part is that when I was a young uh, journalist, I actually went and lived in China and worked for a senior official there named Li Chengchun. And that was at the height of the economic and political reform of China. So I was a baby journalist then. And... I left shortly after their, I was in Tiananmen Square. I left shortly after uh, the crackdown and Mm. uh, then went to Hong Kong and eventually ended up helping Bloomberg News, this upstart news organization, open its Hong Kong, Shanghai and Beijing offices. Uh, So that was sort of my, my China stint. And then I came to the States as a less than baby journalist, but a little bit older journalist. And I was, I guess... 28 or 29, and was uh, the White House correspondent for Bloomberg for seven years during the Clinton Mm. administration, and eventually wrote some books, did some things like that, and then uh, ended up at NPR for about 15 years. And what prompted the move now to join the record with Recorded Future? Well, I mean, cyber is it, right? I mean, this is where the future is. And I was for so long, I was the terrorism correspondent for NPR. And five or six years ago, I started noticing that a lot of my Rolodex was shifting, right? All these people who were experts in terrorism were suddenly shifting their portfolios to cyber. And uh, mm. it was it was sort of one of the first things that I noticed. And I said to NPR, you know, we really ought to be doing some cyber, and uh, it just wasn't a priority for them. And in fact, as of, I think, two weeks ago, they finally hired their first cyber correspondent. So for me, this is the great frontier, the new frontier, and um, I want to be a part of it. You know, it's interesting to me, your background with Bloomberg, because um, I, my, my recollection in chatting with Christopher Allberg, who runs Recorded Future, is that um, I think there's been some inspiration for him starting the record from the way that Bloomberg uh, started up itself. That's right. So I, I come, I was there at the early stirrings of Bloomberg, and now I'm here at the early stirrings of the record. And a lot of it feels really familiar. I mean, back in the old days when I was a, uh, a China correspondent for, for Bloomberg, both in Hong Kong, Shanghai, well, in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Beijing, uh, I used to have to say on the phone, yes, a Bloomberg, like Reuters, but better. So um <laughs> I haven't found what my analogy is yet for the the record. I'm kind of a fresh face here, but uh, that's certainly going to be the attitude going forward. Yeah, I, I have to say that, you know, the record has been building an impressive uh, uh, collection of folks there, yourself included, of course. And um, 
I'm curious, you know, to what degree are you finding yourself getting up to speed with cyber? Do you feel as though, you know, the background that you have is serving you well and, and your colleagues are supporting you there? Yes, but I, I should say that I've been actually doing cyber stuff for some time. I mean, the mm. if you if you think about my terrorism beat, what really changed about terrorism was when a group in Somalia called Al-Shabaab started using YouTube channels and, and um, the whole sort of online realm to get recruits. And then you started seeing more and more these groups, you know, using cyber as uh, a weapon. And so that, that was part of it. And then the other part of it is, is because of my interest in this. Um, you know, I was a terrorism correspondent for, I don't know, 13 years or 14 years. And then I went to investigations for NPR and I did a number of cyber stories. The ones that mm. I think most people saw was a very deep dive. And I'd like to th- hope and think that it was the definitive dive on Solar Wits. It was a 12 minute piece on NPR, which is a lot of real estate on NPR. It was yeah. a long magazine style piece. And we actually got Solar Winds, the people who investigated uh, the hack. And lots of intelligence officials, you know, on the record in that story explaining how it happened. And I think we had the first definitive account of exactly, at least at that moment in time, I think they keep, you know, this is the way cyber is. You keep finding something new, but at least in that moment of time, what was behind the solar winds attack? And then just before I left NPR, I did a huge uh, piece of similar real estate on the radio in a similar long magazine style piece on the Microsoft Exchange hack. And what mm. we discovered that hadn't been said elsewhere was that there was, remember, there was that big explosion kind of at the end of activity, right? And everybody assumed, look, the explosion of activity was because they figured out that Microsoft was about to patch, which may well be the case. But if you talk to people in the intelligence community, they think that explosion of activity wasn't just sort of random, right? It was picking up shopping malls and dentist's office and mom and pop stores. It wasn't random. It was a bunch of information they were trying to get to train their AI. And so that was a pretty major story I did. So in terms of like sort of getting up to speed on cyber, um, uh, that's not <laughs> that's not really the issue. Are those the kinds of stories that you're looking forward to telling with the record? Is is the long form storytelling what attracts you or do you want to spread it around some? I think the long form story uh is definitely part of what's attracting me. I think also there's some audio things that we can do, given my background. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have this big China background, and now China is, you know, back on the scene in a big way, sort of marrying the two things I'm really interested in, right? China and cyber. So um, it, it puts me in a really great position to be able to do some stories that other people might not be doing and to get people to notice the record even more than they already are. You know, I think it's fair to say that um, you know, journalism has seen its challenges over the, the past decade or, or so or, or more. Um, and an interesting development to me are things like the record, where you have an organization, a successful organization, who decides to invest in news for the benefit of the community in which they are a part of. I think that's a really interesting development in journalism. And I'm curious on, on your take about that. The story of the way Bloomberg started is very similar to this in that it started with financial information. It had something that no one else had. In the case of Bloomberg, it was sort of a a big digest of muni bonds so you could actually compare them. And so it took that information that it had 
that nobody else had and thought, okay, well, so how do we get this information out? How do we have other people understand what it is that we understand? And so they started a news service. There was a Chinese wall between, you know, the sales and business side of Bloomberg, just like there is a Chinese wall between the business side of recorded future and the record. But we, we, we have all this information we can possibly tap into the same way Bloomberg reporters were able to use the Bloomberg terminal to look at things in a different way and find stories there. And, and that's what we're doing. So it doesn't seem so crazy to me. It seems actually a pretty natural progression. And, and you're right. I think Christopher Alberg does see Bloomberg as a bit of an inspiration for this. Um, and it doesn't seem that different to me. It, it feels very, very familiar. Well, can we dig into some of the things that you're looking forward to reporting on? What are some of the uh, stories you have your eye on these days? Well, there are a lot of China stories um, that I have my eye on. What's going on with propaganda in China? What's going on with uh, the way China is reaching out toward uh, other communities, uh, other countries, the way it's using its propaganda and exporting it, which is really interesting. I mean, there are some interesting um, very addictive games that China has developed that it doesn't permit to be video games and virtual reality games that it doesn't uh, allow people to have in China, but are exporting them out uh, outside China. And in that mm. respect, providing games that actually are supposed to extol Chinese morals, you know, and those Chinese morals are things like the game doesn't mention Taiwan or Hong Kong mm. or um, it seems to be uh, anti-LGBT. These are all things that are, you know, Chinese things. I guess you could call them, to use an old Chinese adage, um, gaming with Chinese characteristics. And that's, hmm. that's one of the stories that I'm working on. I'm really interested in that aspect of um, sort of the cultural side of things, because I, I think... It's hard for folks here in the States to imagine um, the kind of cultural overlay that a place like China has or a place like Russia has or Iran or North Korea over how they approach these issues. And with your experience in China, um, how, how does that inform how you approach these sorts of stories? I mean, you have insights on the cultural aspects of why they're doing the things that they do. Exactly. And I think that understanding China requires those kinds of cultural understandings of, of and also sort of a, a background in the way they've done things before. Because what's interesting about China is, well, it's developing. It's a really different place than when I live there at this point, mostly because mm. people are so much richer and they have more opening to the outside world. China falls into very familiar patterns. And so if you understand what those patterns are, you can kind of maybe not guess, but you can anticipate what might be coming next. So, for example, I'm working on a story right now about whether or not China is in search of its modern-day Lei Feng. Lei Feng was a guy who, during the Mao era, was um, sort of seen as the perfect hero for, for, China, for the Chinese people, the person that the Chinese people should emulate. And he was, I think, like a, a low-level PLA sort of uh, guy and... Um, he started being extolled because he kept on saying, I'm sorry, I only have one life to live for Mao Zedong. And he would take thoughts of Mao Zedong's and, and, and talk about how they would be ap applying to his own life. 
And we're seeing bits and pieces of that sort of strategy come out now in terms of um, people on WeChat, what the Chinese are are sort of um, using their own platforms to make louder and augment and emphasize. So I'm working on a story now that sort of looks at whether Xi Jinping will be able to find a modern-day Lei Feng in this current sort of social media um, world. Does that align with Chinese culture, or does it run counter to it, the, the whole notion of those kinds of online influencers? Um, well, I, online influencers, I'm not entirely sure, aligns with Chinese culture, but Chinese culture generally looks for villains and heroes. Hmm. And for people to emulate, this is something that they do a lot. And so we're seeing some people come out with like essays that are being um, amplified by state-run organizations like, you know, the People's Daily and things like that. So when they amplify these messages, this is what I'm getting at when I talk about this modern daily feng. I think that that it resonates with the Chinese people because this is something that they've seen before. And we're seeing a lot of that come out from Xi Jinping now, is that he wants to turn back the clock. Um, there was a front-page story recently on the, in the Wall Street Journal that talked about how uh, they were piecing together things from Xi Jinping's speeches, talking about how we've always talked about uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, right? That there was going mm. to need to be a sort of period of capitalism for China to sort of leap forward, and then it would go back to socialism. And uh, so now the, the idea is that allegedly Xi Jinping has told senior officials, socialism with Chinese characteristics is socialism, and that's what we're going back to. So these are all the mm. sort of cultural machinations that we're seeing go on in Beijing. Certainly something is afoot. We're seeing essays come out, talk about uh, you know, the next cultural revolution or the next revolution in culture in China. There's a turn against, you know, Western pop stars. Even locally grown uh, pop stars are are suddenly disappearing from social media platforms. So there's there's clearly something going on, a realignment going on that we're watching, whether it's with, you know, uh, the way they're cracking down on some of these big new tech companies the way that they've decided that education companies now really need to be state-run as opposed to regular sort of capitalist companies. These are all things that are going on in China now that are part of a bigger narrative that the record will be exploring, I hope, uh, in the coming months. What about the, the tension that exists when it comes to human rights? And, and I'm thinking, you know, particularly we have Let's use Apple as an example. You know, uh, large, successful company, uh, successful uh, products, but those products are manufactured in China. And indeed, um, that is one of the only places they could be manufactured in terms of the expertise. And we couldn't just throw a switch and bring them back here to the States. We we don't have the capacity or the the knowledge, or, or so, that's my understanding, right. to make something like an iPhone. Um, but that presents an interesting tension there, doesn't it, between a company like Apple, who uh, certainly says that human rights are important to them, um, and yet they are highly reliant on the Chinese government. Exactly. And and it's not just Apple, right? I mean, uh, we have, right. Google has this problem. You know, Facebook has this problem. And and it's I think it's something that they're all grappling with. You know, I, I teach a cyber regulation course at Temple Law School. Uh, every mm. spring. 
And um, this is one of the things that we discuss all the time, which is where do you find that sweet spot between wanting to be part of an enormous market and, and not just have your stuff internally in China, but also fabrication in China? And where, where does national security slice that, right? Do we feel comfortable that all this is being made in China uh, and all our iPhones are made in China? How, how do we know they're safe? Uh, so that's, that's actually a very great vein of uh, storytelling that we can talk about. And when we talk about this back and forth, like, you know, social media does not do well in China because China basically home grows, uh, home grows its own social media, right? And that's mm-hmm. what, because they want to have that kind of control. So some of these decisions have already been made by the Chinese state. And some of them are, are ones that uh, companies, as you say, like Apple, are going to have to try to grapple through. You know, you mentioned regulation, and, and that makes me think of Facebook and uh, uh, you know, facing their own challenges here in, uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. But um, not a company that uh, seems to have an impulse to necessarily do the right thing for its own sake, um, <laughs> to say the well, least. Well, apparently recently they are, right? I mean, they're going to uh, tweak their news feed so more of their positive stories rise to the top. So Right, right. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I would label that as being in their own interest. Uh, <laughs> but but so, I mean, but that brings me to regulation. And do is do you have a sense that more regulation is coming? Is, is there a growing um, call for companies like this? If they're not going to do it in a satisfactorily way themselves, that the government will step in? Yes, well, so I have a colleague at uh, the record who really does much more of this sort of Capitol Hill and policy uh, Mm. uh, coverage. So that's less what I would do. But I can tell you because I also teach media law at Temple Law School and I'm in a class now and we're we're looking at Section 230 and um, the Communications Decency Act and whether or not it's completely and utterly updated, uh, you know, out of date. I think most people would say it is. How that gets fixed is is kind of amazing to me that it hasn't already been fixed, right? I mean, uh, everyone knows there's a problem. I think the the companies themselves know there's a problem, but nobody seems. I, if you recall, when Mark Zuckerberg was before the Senate committees, it was like a five hour IT a call with your IT official, right? I mean, <laughs> right, right. They were, you know, so how do you make money, Mister Zuckerberg? Um, right, right, sir. We run ads. I mean, so so <laughs> right. we're dealing with a, a technology, a, just a technological knowledge problem too. And I think that that's part of the big issue here. And you have people like Senator Warner who understand this. And I think that we're going to see. I think we're going to see legislation this year, but uh, we'll, or at least early next year, because I think that's where the tide is going. But I don't want to speak too much on this because I would sound. Uh, naive compared with uh, my colleagues Martin and Andrea. Well, uh, again, uh, congratulations on on joining the record. Certainly looking forward to uh, what's to come from you. Uh, And thank you so much for taking the time with us today. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. Our thanks to Dina Temple-Rastin, the newest member of the Record by Recorded Futures team of journalists. 
Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.